Welcome to Kevin Connor's podcast. This current series of messages is on the book of Acts, showing its relevance for today as a pattern book for the operation of the Holy Spirit through the church. Be sure also to get a copy of Kevin's commentary on the book of Acts. Visit kevinconnor.org for details. Now I want to read from verses 30, uh, 37 or 36 I should say, through to 47, a very familiar passage. And then I want us to go back to uh, just a couple of scriptures uh, from the Gospel of Matthew. So let, uh, let me just read the passage first of all. So Acts chapter 2 and uh, verse 30, uh, 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked I think the Amplified says they were stabbed in their heart, excessively irritated. How many think that's good Holy Ghost conviction? Uh, When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you, and to your children and to all that are far off, even as, the, as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now let's turn over to the Gospel of Matthew. And I'd like us to look at uh, Matthew chapter 19. And as we read this uh, passage here, I want to uh, pick up a principle here, not deal with the subject that uh, Jesus is dealing with particularly, but at least a principle here. All right, Matthew chapter 19, and let's pick up in verse 3. Matthew 19, verse 3. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they two or twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered or permitted you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. Now I don't want to deal with that uh, whole issue of... um, divorce and remarriage, anything like that. But I want to pick up a principle that we have here uh, as we move back to uh, uh, finishing our our session here on Acts chapter 2. Now, 
as you just, just hold Matthew chapter 18 for a moment, and I want you to pick up a very important principle here because the, uh, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him about the whole issue of divorce and remarriage. And so what does uh, Jesus do in verse 4? Let's pick it up again. He answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Now let's see what Jesus is doing because I just want to pick up the principle here that will sort of help us on Acts chapter 2. Uh, the whole issue in this passage, of course, is divorce and remarriage. And so uh, Jesus took them back to the beginning. Everybody say the beginning. Okay, he took them back to the beginning. So he said, let's go back to the beginning. And uh, Jesus goes back to the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, which is, which is the book of beginnings. And he goes back to the very first chapter of the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. And he says, look, haven't you read in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female. So Jesus goes back to Genesis, the book of beginnings, chapter 1, verse 27, that God said, let's make man in our image after our likeness, and he made them male and female, okay? Uh, so uh, that's the beginning. That was God's original plan, male and female. We might say this, he didn't make them male and male. And he didn't make them female and female. So that rules out homosexuality and lesbianism. Everybody said amen. And he didn't make them Adam, uh, he didn't make them, uh, Adam and Steve. It was Adam and Eve. Are you breathing tonight? Okay. All right, so he's taking them back to the beginning. That's the issue here. All right, so back to the beginning. And then in the next verse, he still picks up the same thought here uh, by saying, uh, verse 5 and said for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they too shall be one flesh wherefore they are no more two but one flesh what therefore God has joined together let not man put asunder so again Jesus go back to the book of beginnings and in this uh, verse he quotes Genesis chapter 2 and uh, I think it's that 23 somewhere there and he says uh, uh, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. So now we have not just male and female here in the beginning, but we have husband and wife relationship. So Jesus is going back to the beginning. So he's going back to creation, and he's going back to the original marriage, back to the beginning. So this is what it was in the beginning, and he adds his word, what man, uh, God has put and joined together, let not man put asunder. Well, now, let's see what the, uh, the Pharisees do then. In verse uh, 7, they say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? So now, who wrote the book of Genesis? Moses. Everybody say Moses. Okay, so Moses wrote the book of Genesis. And so uh, now they're trying to trick Jesus on this whole issue of divorce and remarriage. They say, Well, okay, well, if that's so, God made the male and female in the beginning. And in the beginning, man was to leave his father, mother, be joined his wife, husband and wife. And how many know that God's, and let's put it up here, God's perfect will, God's perfect will was marriage and no divorce. How many know that? Regardless of the situation we're in today, and it's not the subject I'm dealing with, but how many know that God's ideal, God's perfect will in the beginning was marriage and no divorce? How many can say amen to that? All right, now something happens and we drop down to a secondary level. 
Now, this is God's perfect will. This is the highest level. Marriage, no divorce. But now we drop down to a secondary level in what I call God's permitted will. I used to say permissive, but because permissive has become a bad word uh, in a, a permissive society, but God's permitted will. So you say, okay, Kevin, has God got two wills? No. Okay, but God permitted. So we have a permitted will of God. And what is God's permitted will? So if you're looking for a scripture for this, you've got it. So let's read it again. Just want you to pick up the principle here. I'm not dealing with the subject. Uh, so they say unto him, Why then did Moses, or why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put away? Now, has Moses or God changed his mind in the beginning? That's what the standard was. Now, so many hundred years later, Moses permits divorce. And also, when you go back to the law where he's quoting from, uh, let's see, I think it's Deuteronomy 24, he permits divorce and remarriage. So does God have two wills? So God's perfect will is marriage and no divorce. And now later on, God changes his mind, has a secondary level, permitted will, and permits divorce and remarriage. So, you know, if people are looking for this, they can grab this. Or what are we, what are we doing here? So... Deuteronomy 24. Well, now let's go back to what Jesus said in the next verse. He said unto them, Moses, because of what? The hardness of your heart suffered. How many have the translation permitted? Okay, so the word suffered is God permitted it. Why? Because it was his perfect will? No, because of a heart condition. Hardness of heart either on the wife's part or the husband's part or both. So God permitted divorce and remarriage, not because it was his perfect will, but his permitted will, his permissive will, because of a heart problem. But, what did Jesus say then? But from the beginning, it's not so. So now when Jesus comes along and we have the cross here, how many know that God wants us to get back to what it was in the beginning? Can you see that? Okay. So that's what happened in the Old Testament. Jesus said, okay, let's get back to the beginning. That's what God wants in the beginning. God's permitted a lot of things. And there's a lot of things today that happen that God permits. But it's not his perfect will. But it's because of hardness of heart. Now, I won't say any more on that because that's not our subject. Now let's go back to the book of Acts. All right, now let's apply this thing that we're looking at here in Acts chapter 2 now to this whole principle of what it was in the beginning. Now those of you who've done uh, Principles of Church Life class realize uh, the, the significance of this. So if you're taking down notes, this is what I want to say here. As we look at Acts chapter 2, and particularly this uh, section we're going to be finishing on here, is that uh, I believe that Acts chapter 2 is actually the most important chapter in the whole book of Acts. And the several reasons I'm saying that, as you'll see together, first of all, it's the original outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's the original Pentecostal outpouring. And in the passage that we've just got before us as well, we have the original Pentecostal sermon, and then when 3,000 souls were added to the church, we have the original church membership 
and qualifications for church membership. So in other words, if we want to know what was God's will for the church, let's go back to the beginning. And so in the beginning, what was the church like? The New Testament church, when Jesus said, Upon this rock I'll build my church. We see in the book of Acts, and uh, of course King James bring, brings this out, that the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. So we go back to the beginning. Now, how many know that though the early church was not perfect, the early church was moving in the perfect will of God? I mean, you know that. Now, it wasn't perfect, but it was in, in the will of God. And so we, what's happened over church history is we look at the early, at the early church and see what it was in the beginning and the principles that God laid down, I don't believe they've ever changed. So this is God's will. God set it forth in the book of Acts. But over, over church history, things declined. And how many know that the church as a whole today is doing a lot of things on the secondary level? In fact, some are way down here. They say, well, God's blessing. Say, well, God permitted it, but it's still not his perfect will. So our desire in Waverly Christian Fellowship is to say, let's get back to what the church was in the beginning. Let's not settle for a secondary level, which people say, oh, well, God's blessing and God's, God's permit. Well, he permits a lot of things. But it's not necessarily his perfect will. So my point here tonight is, let's get back to the beginning. What was the church in the beginning? So in Acts chapter 2, the foundation of the chapter, Acts chapter 1, we've spent a few weeks on because it concerns the Lord Jesus Christ going back to the Father. Acts chapter 2 concerns now the birth of the church and the descent of the Holy Spirit and the original outpouring of the Spirit, the original Pentecost, the original qualification for church membership. So let's go back to the beginning because we have so many churches and denominations today on various levels down here. So well, what level are you on? As we'll see at the end of our session tonight, oh well, we don't believe this, we don't believe that, and we don't like this, and we throw out what we don't want, so forth, so let's get back to the beginning. And that's our desire in this fellowship, okay? Let's get back to the beginning. Can we say amen tonight? Back to the beginning. Why don't you put down a couple of these scriptures? Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, 8. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning. And the early church was great, but I believe that the church in its latter day is going to be better than the, the, the beginning. So better is the end of a thing than the beginning. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 8. Acts chapter 11 verse 15, we've already referred to this on previous sessions, Acts 11 verse 15, when Peter is reporting back to Jerusalem about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles, you know what he says? He says, the Holy Spirit fell on them as on us at the beginning. So let's get back to the beginning. This is the beginning of the New Testament church. But I believe exactly as we see in the Matthew 19 principle, over, the, over church history, the church has declined and come down to a secondary level or a lower level than that and is not on the level. And God is saying, come on, let's get back up here. Let's get back to what it was in the beginning. And that's our desire in this fellowship. And everybody said, Amen. All right, now let's pick up the first thing I want you to note here and we want to cover the rest of this chapter because we need to keep moving here. Uh, we have the first Pentecostal sermon and actually in the book of Acts there are seven sermons that Peter gave and there's seven sermons that uh, the Apostle Paul gave. In the book of Acts actually we have about 14 sermons of apostolic preaching 
And so what did apostolic preaching involve? Uh, this is the Pentecostal uh, preaching of Peter here and what were the main things he covered. So I've just put an outline form on the overhead. Nine basic things that uh, we see here. So in uh, Acts chapter 2, this is the first message. It's like a foundation Pentecostal message. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. He stands up with the eleven and he begins to preach. And he preached Christ. And right through the book of Acts, they didn't preach about Christ, they preached Christ. So these are the main points that we see in these verses. In verse 22, we have the sinlessness of Christ. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God, among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know. So we have the sinlessness, Jesus of Nazareth, the sinless ones. Very interesting that many times the demons would cry out to Jesus and say, we know who thou art, the Holy One, Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One, and Jesus forbade them to speak. So, you know, the tragedy is that the demons recognized that Jesus was the Son of God, while a lot of religious people didn't. How many know that the demons had a little bit more insight than some of the religious leaders? So the sinlessness of Christ. Then, the same verse which we've just read, the ministry of Christ, his ministry. Uh, uh, approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him. In verse 23, we have the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So we have his crucifixion. In verses 24 through to 29, we have his burial. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. And then in verse uh, 27 says, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And then in verse 29, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God hath sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. So we have the burial of Christ, and then in verse 30 to 32, uh, we have the resurrection. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. Then in verse 34, we have his ascension. Verse 34, For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool, make thy foes thy footstool. And we've seen the significance of that verse on previous sessions. Back to verse 33, we have the exaltation. Uh, Therefore being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. And then in verse 34 and 35, we have his exaltation, or his enthronement. Sit on my right hand, so we have ascension, exaltation, enthronement. And then in verse 36, as uh, we've seen on previous occasions, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ, and the receiving of the exalted name. So these are the main points that Peter gives in that original Pentecostal sermon, uh, the main points, and it all involves the Lord Jesus Christ, his sinlessness, his ministry, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, his enthronement, and his glorification. 
And what was the end result of preaching Christ? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, the whole message, but particularly as a climax in the reception of uh, Jesus being made both Lord and Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the exalted name, when they heard this they were pricked or excessively irritated in their heart and said to Peter, what shall we do? All right, so that's the first thing we, we have here. And as you go through all the sermons in the book of Acts, you actually find that the heart of every sermon, of the 14 sermons that I've seen in the book of Acts, the heart of every message is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christianity is quite an empty religion. We have empty grave clothes. We have an empty tomb. And we have an empty cross because Jesus is risen. I think that's worth a hallelujah, don't you? So we don't need a crucifix because Jesus is no longer on the cross. He's risen. So the heart of every Pentecostal message in the book of Acts, every sermon that I know of involves the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. And so that's the first Pentecostal sermon we have and the tremendously important facts that are there. Now, the next thing uh, that we uh, want to look at here is uh, the message concerning church membership here. And I don't need to spend overly much time on this because most of you have done Principles of Church Life class. I will refer back to verse 17, but just for a moment, that uh, Peter picks up the prophet Joel and the last days in which the Lord pours out his spirit. So we can still leave this on here. In fact, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, let's go over to the book of Revelation for a moment here. When Peter gets up and says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, quotes from the prophecy there that it shall come, come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And uh, your, uh, your young men will see visions, the old men will dream dreams. And on my servants and my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood, fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now I want you to compare that with Revelation chapter 6 because uh, there are many expositors and many priests today who say, well, what happened on the day of Pentecost? It's not for today. When Peter said, this is that, they interpret that and say, well, this is the total fulfillment uh, of what Joel said. But let's look at it. Revelation chapter 6. And under the sixth seal, verse 12, listen to it here. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal... And lo, there was, a, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became as blood and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. Let's look at what Peter is saying here and see the, the, uh, the extent of Joel's prophecy. Okay. So Peter is quoting from Joel, so... As we've seen previously, we have one of the Old Testament prophets here who spoke of the last day, the prophet Joel, that in the last days I'll pour my spirit on all flesh. And so we have, as we've seen previously, 
day of the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. So we have one thousand here, one thousand here, and then we believe in a coming uh, millennial kingdom, a Christian millennium, I'll say not a Jewish millennium, when Jesus comes the second time. So a day of the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. So since the cross, we are in the last days. And I think we can all say amen that here we are, 1991, how many believe we're living in the last of the last days? And I believe it's later than we think. So when Peter, uh, when Peter says, so we have Joel, the Old Testament prophet, we have Peter, a New Testament uh, apostle, and remember it's, uh, that Peter was given the keys of the kingdom because Jesus said, upon this rock I'll build my church, I'll give unto you the keys of the kingdom. And so Acts chapter 2, we see Peter using these keys. And so Peter, uh, quoting from Joel, says, In the last days I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. So here we are in the last days. And so when, when some of the expositors say, well, it was all fulfilled back there, the, the, the thing is this, that on the day of Pentecost, um, virtually hardly any of this happened. Were there any signs in the earth beneath? Was there blood and fire and vapor of smoke? Was the sun turned to darkness? Was the moon turned to blood? No, none of that happened on the day of Pentecost. Because he now, quoting from Joel, says, in the last days I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh, and then it ends up with the signs in the earth, blood, fire, vapor, smoke, the sun turning to darkness, the moon into blood. Before the great and notable day of the Lord come, and whosoever shall fall, uh, call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, in other words, what, what uh, Peter is saying when he says this is that, he's really saying this is the beginning of that which Joel said. And so all through this age, the Lord pouring out his spirit and we see what's happening today when untold thousands are receiving the baptism of spirit. So all through this age, the last days, God will pour out his spirit and the significant thing from the book of Revelation is this. All this was to happen before the great and notable day of the Lord come. The notable day, the great and notable day of the Lord is the second coming when Jesus comes that second time. So this outpouring is to go right through at least to Revelation chapter 6 because Joel said back here the sun would be darkened and the moon would be turned to blood and that has never happened. There's been signs in the sun in the Bible, there's been signs in the moon in the Bible. But the moon has never become as blood. And that does not happen to Revelation chapter 6 under the sixth seal, which means that there must be one, two, three, four, five seals to open before that happens. Now I know Russia said years ago she was going to paint the moon red. And God said, no, you're not. I'll be doing it. How many are glad for that? Eh? So God's reserved that little planet for himself. And there's much that could be said because when Jesus died on the cross, the heavenly body that was affected was the sun. The sun was darkened. But once the moon is turned to blood, that's a sign to the church of the coming day of atonement and blood atonement in the church. So it's been interesting that uh, some of the Old Testament prophecies... Did you know Isaiah the prophet said that uh, there would come a time when the sun would be confounded and the moon would be ashamed and the uh, Hebrew word for ashamed says that the 
means that the moon would be dug into and explored and poured into. Interesting. So it shows that the outpouring of the Spirit goes at least right through to that time. So God is pouring out Spirit. We are in the last of the last days. But this is just to refute those authorities who say, well, it's all fulfilled at Pentecost. We don't need any of that today. It's all over and done with. Pentecost was the total fulfillment. No, it was the beginning, the beginning of the fulfillment. Everybody said amen. All right, now let's go to Acts chapter 2 again. And uh, because, as I said, a lot of you have completed principles of church life class, I don't need to repeat all this. But let's pick up the uh, things that are involved in becoming a member of the early church. And remember, we're looking at things today that are not what they used to be. We want to get back to the beginning. That's our desire. What was it in the beginning? God has permitted a lot of things for hardness of heart, for unbelief and a thousand one things in the church on a secondary and lower levels from the Word of God. But uh, as I said, our desire is to get back to the book of Acts. So uh, we're told in verse 40, 41, 3,000 souls were added unto them, added unto the 120. All right, now, yeah, these notes down, just reminding ourselves of the New Testament church. So Lord says, upon this rock I'll build my church. And these are the, this is what it was in the beginning. So first of all, number one, we have the doctrine of repentance. First per, uh, word that Peter mentioned is repentance. And we've seen through the scriptures that repentance was the first word of John the Baptist. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, the first word of Jesus, repent for the kingdom of heaven at hand. And the apostles preached repentance on the day of Pentecost. First word is repentance, not only believe, only believe. The first word of the gospel is not only believe. And we've developed in a lot of churches today, sorry to say, what I call a cheap and easy only believism. And a lot of people believe in the head. But see, faith is not of the head. Faith is of the heart. And so how many believe we could do with some good Holy Ghost repentance today throughout the nation? Everybody said amen. So it's the first word of the gospel. And then number two, the second word that's involved in this whole context here is the word faith. In verse 44, all that believed were together. The word believe is the same Greek word for faith, pistis. Uh, so whether we say believe or faith, it's the same Greek word here. So many times there's no genuine saving faith because there's been no genuine repentance. And so people, I remember a brother said to me years ago in New Zealand, he said, Kevin, would you stop preaching repentance? I said, well, why? He said, well, that's a Jewish word. Isn't it amazing? Anything you don't like, give it to the Jews. Or dump it in the millennium, something like that. I said, it's a Bible word. He said, I said, well, what's the word for the church? He said, the word for the church is only believe. The word repent is for the Jews, but the word believe is for the church. I said, well, where is it? The last word that Christ had to the church in the book of Revelation. Out of seven of the churches, five of them are called to repentance. That's a pretty big repentance, uh, a pretty big uh, percentage called to repentance. So, repentance precedes faith. Then the next step we have is water baptism. We've already dealt with that. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ and the triune name uh, that's involved in water baptism. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then number four, the next step involved in this message. So you'll notice he preached Christ first and now he's preaching the things that involve what it was in the beginning. 
New Testament church membership. And in God's mind, it's never changed. The church has changed. But in God's mind, he says, oh, let's get, what was it in the beginning? Let's get back to the beginning. That's why Acts chapter 2, all the rest of the book is built on this. And every church in the book of Acts primarily had this as its foundation. That's why we're emphasizing. So Holy Spirit baptism, uh, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we've looked at the reception of the Holy Spirit and the evidence of speaking in tongues as the Spirit gives utterance. We did that theme. So the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off. So what's he saying here? So the promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is to you and to your children and to all that are far off. Who does it exclude? Everybody's involved in it. So all all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God is, shall call. Is, is God still calling people today? All right, the gift is for them. The promise is unto them. And then number five, they responded to that. And then we're told that the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And then what happened? They continued in the apostles' doctrine. And I believe probably the clearest and briefest summary we have of the apostolic doctrine is Hebrews chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 which spells this out uh, let us go on unto perfection not laying again A. the foundation of repentance from dead works B. faith towards God not faith towards yourself and not faith in your faith contrary to a lot of faith preaching today number C. doctrine of baptisms including water baptism, Holy Spirit baptism number 4 and of the laying of hands and all the uses uh, to that. Then E, of resurrection from the dead. Number F, of eternal judgment. And then let us go on to perfection. This will we do if God permit. And as Brother Ern Baxter has brought out many times, that in building a house, you have to lay proper foundations. And then the inspector comes along and inspects the foundations uh, before he gives you the permit to go on. And many times God does not give the permit to churches because he said you haven't laid the foundations. So he says, let us go on unto perfection and unto maturity and completion, and this will we do if God gives us the permit. But God won't give the permit if the foundations are not right. And that's why it's very important in our fellowship here that all these foundation principles are not just theory, but we experience them. This is what it was in the beginning. All right, so we have that. Then we're told... In verse uh, 42, they continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. And when we see so many uh, false doctrines and doctrines of devils today, uh, we need to continue steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. Then we're told they continued steadfastly in fellowship. So the next part we have is fellowship, koinonia, and all that's involved in fellowship. And then number seven, in breaking of bread. And verse 46, we're told that they broke bread from house to house uh, in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. The Amplified says, uh, breaking, bre uh, breaking bread and having communion, having the Lord's table from house to house. Remember, they didn't have uh, big church buildings there in those days as we may have today. They had the temple and eventually that was going to be destroyed and uh, they would be scattered. So, breaking of bread and in prayers. So, that's the picture that we have, have right through there. And then we're told in uh, King James here, praising God and having faith with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So what I'm saying here tonight, folks, is this, that uh, Acts chapter 2 to me is the most important chapter in the book of Acts. 
It's the foundation of the church. Jesus has said to Peter uh, before his crucifixion, upon this rock I'll build my church. In the book of Acts we see the Lord building his church. He says to Peter, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. And here we see Peter using those keys. And the result is, as he opens the door of the keys of the kingdom, 3,000 souls are added to them, 120 plus 3,000. Then we see in the next chapter, 5,000, then multitudes of men and women. And I don't see anywhere in the book of Acts where this has changed. So I believe it's still the same today that if a person wants to be added to the church, and this might uh, sound uh, a little bit explosive, but let me ask you a question. How are people, uh, how do people get into the kingdom of God? Except a man be born again, he cannot enter the church. Does it, does it say that? Except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom. So how many in the kingdom tonight? Some of you are not in the kingdom. Okay, how do you get into the church? Now, how many are in the church tonight? How many don't know where they are? Okay, you see, we take these things for granted. And I'll say this and then run away from it. I believe there's a lot of people today who have been born into the kingdom but have never been added to the church. So just think about it. Think about it. I'm talking about this is what it was in the beginning. All right, now I want to finish up on this. Real good illustration of what we've got here because as the Lord, uh, as, uh, the Lord Jesus said, upon this rock I'll build my church. And this is the original church membership. And I believe that's the standard today. But uh, we, we have changed things. So here's the house of the Lord. And uh, this is just a good illustration, illustrating from the Old Testament tabernacle of Moses, this whole picture uh, of these uh, things. Uh, some of you know my background, and because these things are on tape, I'll sort of have to behave myself generally. I belong, belong to a particular part of the uh, uh, particular denomination, and uh, we didn't believe in water baptism, and we didn't believe in communion, and we didn't believe in the gifts of the Spirit. So what we were able to do, we were sort of able to go into God's house and say, I don't like that piece of furniture, throw it out. And I don't like that piece of furniture, I don't believe in that, throw it out. As you've heard me often say, I was an unbelieving believer. But in God's house, God's Old Testament church, we might say, this is what we have, this is the approach. And I'd like to, just as we finish our session here tonight, let's apply these eight principles to what we have here. First of all, any Israelite who wanted to approach God, they had to come to the gate. No sneaking under the tent and under the court gate and climbing over the fence. Anyone comes in any other way, they're a thief and a robber. Didn't matter what tribe you belonged to, whether it was the tribe of Ephraim, Manasseh, tribe of Gad, or the Salvation Army tribe, or the Presbyterian tribe, or the Methodist tribe, or the Calathumpian tribe. Didn't matter what tribe you belonged, if you want to approach God, you had to come to here. This represents repentance from dead works. And then as soon as you got into the court, the first article you had to face was the altar of brass where the blood was shed. The only place for 
cleansing for sin. They had to have faith in the blood. I heard one minister say when I was shepherding a church up in the country, he said, thank God I'm not saved by the blood of any man. Told his congregation this, well, he's not saved because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. So they had to exercise faith in the blood. And then on their approach to God, the next article of furniture involved water, the brazen labor, water baptism. Now, there's no use coming and saying, well, I don't like this, but I'll jump into this, because if you just get water baptized and bypass the blood of Jesus, then you'll just go down a dry sinner and come up a wet one. This is God's approach. Then when you got here, you come to the door of the tabernacle and before the priest could enter in there, he had to be clothed properly in his priestly garment. And Luke chapter 24 refers to the priestly garment because when Jesus said, you will be endued with power from on high, the Greek word endued there is literally to be clothed upon with the Holy Spirit. And the priestly garment for ministry in here is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, when you got into here, you got into breaking of bread because once a week, the priests used to have the table of showbread as we have the Lord's table once a week. They did it on the last day of the week, the Sabbath. We do it on the first day of the week, the Lord's day. And then, of course, right opposite here was the golden candlestick, which represented the apostles' doctrine and the light, the seven lamps, the seven principles of the doctrine of Christ in Hebrews 6. And then, of course, they continued in prayers, which brings you to the golden altar of incense. And the priests used to be in here, and this is where they had fellowship one with another. The triumphant glory of the whole thing was the Ark of the Covenant, and that's where the very presence of God dwelt and where God's voice was heard. And the peculiar thing about the ark was it was on the ark of the covenant that the name of the Lord was invoked. The only article upon which his name was invoked, Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, if you want the reference, was on this article. And here he said, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus both Lord and Christ. This is God's way of approach. We come to the door of repentance, faith in the blood, water baptism, Holy Spirit baptism, and we enjoy the apostles' doctrine, we have fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers, and enjoy the presence of the Lord as we worship together. That is a New Testament church. How many want to be in a New Testament church? Everybody said amen. Let's all stand together. Father, we just come to you at the close of our time of teaching together we thank you again for your precious word which is a lamp unto our feet and light unto our path and father our desire is indeed to be a new testament church we realize lord today that your church as a whole is on uh, such a low level in so many areas but father as you're challenging the church throughout the world to look at what it was in the beginning and get back to things as it as it was in the beginning that's our desire lord and not to be on a permissive or permitted level but to get back to the perfect will of God help us Father I pray for every brother and sister here uh, tonight that if they have not followed you in obedience fully to your word and the things that we've laid out tonight that their hearts will be responsive and say Lord I want to do your will let it be 
seal your word to your hearts, Father, and now let your blessing be upon us as we separate until we gather again together to worship you in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you. Look forward to seeing you. Be sure to visit kevinconnor.org for more information about Kevin, his books, and his ministry.